Hello, welcome to episode 49 of the Midlife Pilot Podcast. All things aviation and midlife is what we're all about. My name is Ben. I'm an instrument-rated pilot here in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Started flying when I was 48 and uh, still going strong. With us tonight, we have our co-host. Let's start out on the West Coast. Ted, Flysport, how are you tonight? Hey, doing well. Yeah, Very good. And from Music Row-ish in Nashville, Tennessee, welcome, Brian. What's going on? And the title of tonight's episode is We Have Information Whiskey, so came prepared. Have you ever been to an airport that was advertising information whiskey and you tell them you've got the booze news? I try not to do the obvious things. It, it is kind of a silver platter. I, I agree with you. I've, I've been tempted, but I haven't done it. <laughs> it, it sounds like something you can get away with in, in the South. Sounds like one of those great like phrases that, yeah. Exactly. Like exactly. <laughs> so we are streaming to you live as we do on most Tuesdays nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can find us at youtube.com slash at Midlife Pilot Podcast. The audio version is available at iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. Give us a follow and you can support us for as little as 99 cents a month, or as Brian likes to say, 25 cents an episode. Since the last podcast, we've had a new supporter join us, Nathan W. Thank you very much. We appreciate your support. We love getting feedback and suggestions, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But you can email us at midlifepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Wanted to just do a little quick round robin tonight is just a sit back and chill episode, catch up, see what everybody's been doing. What do you guys think? We've had a lot of guests. It's been really exciting, but it's nice to just sit back for a minute and, and just hang out with everybody. Yeah, there's. we've all been doing a lot of flying. I'm curious to hear what both of you all been up to. Both of you have posted some really great videos on YouTube, and we can talk about that a little bit as well. But Brian... I want to hear some about the 140 adventures you've been having. I actually haven't flown the 140 here in a, in a couple of few weeks. Been focused on flying the plane I actually own, or at least partly own. But uh, but man, I do find it creeps back as far as just I really want to do more tailwheel flying, and it's it, it's interesting to see how you can have addictions for things that you didn't even know possible just even. Uh, a couple of years ago or whatever. And now I've got to have access to a 140 or some sort of a tailwheel. That's been good. And if anything, what I've been doing is putting some of those tailwheel lessons to use, landing in a lot of interesting winds and conditions. And um, I was doing a little bit of 16 gusting 24, mostly-ish headwind, but it was definitely a ride. And I just find so much more comfort. I was telling Chris, the OG midlife pilot, we were just talking the other day and I was just telling him, I said, it's interesting how I'm at a point now with flying the Cherokee where I've had enough crosswind experience to where I can bury it. I can go to Max demonstrated and it's fun. It's not even a big deal. Like it's, and I'm not saying like that in a braggadocious way. I'm just mean like you just, once you have the rudder all the way down, that's just, that's all you got. And I hope that you're not flying beyond that capacity, but when you're at it and it's nice and steady and you can just feel it, it's, I don't know, the tailwheel flying, I think ultimately took my overall flying confidence, not in a overconfident way, but just in a, uh, just happy feet and just putting the plane where you want it to be and 
all that. So it's been a really interesting thing. And then since I've been doing a lot of cross-country flying in the Cherokee, I have been trying to get back to doing some pattern work. And I just put a video out that was me trying to work out, trying to fly. What is my new pattern at my previous kind of home airport? The one that's closest to my house. The plane doesn't live there because we're not independently wealthy people, but uh, we do bring the plane there a lot. And you have all your landmarks, the familiar places that you, especially when you train there, just done so many landings in one spot. And so it's been really cool to bring the Cherokee down here and then fly much tighter patterns and figure out, because there's some tricky terrain and some other things around John Toon that you have to make some choices about if you're going to fly that way. And so anyway, I put a video out that shows some of that and they weren't, I, I was so I just really focused on center line. You nailed the center line, I think, every single time. But here's my question. I completely understand what you're saying about the crosswinds and feeling comfortable. For me, I imagine it took me nine months to a year of flying in a lot of different conditions to where, yeah, I look at the wind conditions. I'm not ignoring them, but I really don't worry about them nearly as much as I used to. Do you think tell well experience maybe expedited that process for you? Yes, massively. And I think it's com- that combined just with general experience and familiarity with now that I'm actually a part owner in a plane and I'm flying that plane a lot and I'm starting to kind of really dial it in about where its feel is and limits and all that. So yeah, it's obviously a pretty f- forgiving, low wing being a little bit more forgiving, I think, in those crosswinds. And so when you get into something as twitchy and as a 140 with some big old bush tires on it and you're doing all kind of wheel landings and all these other things and different places that you're not familiar with and you kind of put through that and you do fine, you get it. Then coming back to, I don't know, it's just like working out or something. Right. It's like, this is not, this is not really that heavy at all. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just, it's an interesting thing because you, you keep expanding your minimums and finding your limits. And then you just realize within the bounds of the surface area of the controls of the plane, once you get to that point, you're just like, that's all, that's as bad as it will ever be. I'm giving her all she's got. Can't yeah. Her anymore. Yeah. And it's fine. Yeah. 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 yeah it's Captain awesome. Todd put up a, a comment about flying a Piper, not a Cessna is what got me to stop thinking about crosswinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see it's that. real. Yeah. Ted, how so, is the CTLS when it comes to... Famously, the light sports are rated pretty low for a crosswind, demonstrated crosswind numbers, but the egg is actually rated at 16 knots or oh. demonstrated at 16. And a 16 is legit. That is yeah. in the same category as a big plane, a real plane, a grown-up plane. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I've i learned to have some confidence in it as well. I was just out last weekend. I was doing some pattern work. The weather wasn't great. I went over low ceilings. I went over to an airport I hadn't been to for a while. And then I came back and did pattern work. And I was the only one at my Delta. And so that was great. There was actually one other person for a little while, but it meant it's like, oh, let me do short approaches. And the crossing runway, which is a crosswind runway, is closed because there are big cranes right off the end of it. They're building data centers there. And so they would have been using that crosswind runway for the winds that, that were going on. But it wasn't available, so they're using the, the main runways. And it was totally fine. It was like, okay, it's 9 to 14 straight off the side. I'm fine with that. Like, yeah. that that would have been, and that's part of the reason I got that I went to that airport was to have a crosswind runway. And yet, I was, oh, great, I'm going to practice in this. And it was really great because I was sitting there just practicing power off 180s, like, with these weird winds where it's like, 
it's hard enough to do a power of 180, like with no wind. And then you start trying to calculate in what's going to happen here. And it was a good experience. Ben, I think when I first flew with you back when, it was so clear that just your plane was a part of you. And you just had this kind of flow and a way with it that was observable. Only now am I able to get to a point having a plane that I actually can own. And same with you, Ted, right? Like you flew a thousand planes before you landed on that one. Seriously, yeah. And, and so now that conveyor of things can start. I'm just finding myself so much more. There's still like another acceleration point, I think, that happens with learning. We talk about a lot the when you're training and you are at hours, say, I don't know, like between the hours of like 10 and 30 or something, it's just, it's wild how much you are picking up after getting over the, whoa, what am I doing? Kind of, where am I? And you kind of get settled in a little bit, eight, you know, seven out, whatever it is. And then you get on, you get traction with everything. And then it's just off to the races for a period. And ultimately everybody also talks about the plateau that inevitably hits right around check ride time for a lot of people. So the sort of learning curves through all this, I feel like having some, you know, having experience and then getting into a plane that is actually yours and then just getting on it and just going through all the things. It's another ramp in a weird way. I couldn't agree with you more. And I kind of hit that plateau for a long time until I started the commercial training. Now I'm putting the airplane into some positions that I've never been in myself, much less this airplane. And it, it's creating new, I'm uncomfortable in my airplane right now. And I haven't been that way for a really long time. Accelerated stalls, Nathan mm -hmm. Ballard, who's in the chat. With the stall kit on my airplane, basically you put it in a 45 degree bank and you have to keep that stick back. And if you give it an inch, it will never stall. Yeah. You basically have to pull it all the way back to your chest and hold it there until it stalls. Stall warning horn doesn't go off, but you do feel a very noticeable buffet. It took us probably four or five attempts for me to be able to do that, get it to stall on a consistent, because it's, you're pulling with all your might. And I got out of the airplane with sore arms after that flight. So it's yeah, been it's fun though. I enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoy getting uncomfortable and learning new things in those processes. Eight on pylons, I thought it was going to be really difficult. It's not as nearly as bad. <laughs> but the um, spiraling descents, all the commercial stuff, it's a lot of fun and I highly recommend it. But it's now 950 hours in my airplane and I'm, sometimes I feel like I'm flying it for the first time. I think That's one of the not... things about the plateau is it reminds me of when you start doing cross country as a student and all of a sudden it's, oh man, you can just breathe a little bit. You're not sitting there practicing maneuvers with the CFI next to you. Like it might be three minutes between something you need to do. And that's the first time in your flying you've done that. And the same thing here, which is some of the flights are just flying. Some of them I'm going out and practicing maneuvers and I'm learning things and all of that. But sometimes I'm just out flying and it's, I don't know. So it's like not all those hours are learning hours now. Right. I want to respond to one dull geek's comment. Interesting, Ben, accelerated stalls in a PA-28 are very easy. I would just like it noted for the record that in a 300 horsepower engine with a very nose-heavy airplane, 
it's really not that easy. I had to trim all yeah. the way back and was pulling with all my might. And Nathan's in the chat, so hopefully he'll back me up on that. What yeah. if you um, open, did you open the windows? Does that help? Does that change anything? <laughs> <laughs> if it did, I would. I can promise <laughs> you that. But it's, again, it's, I love being in that uncomfortable feeling. Um, yeah. Well, it's like I hearkened back to this in the video I put out yesterday, but it just stuck with me when we had, go back and find our earlier episode where we had Kerry McCauley on, because, because something he said just stuck with me and I've quoted it a couple of times since we were talking about flying by feel and how newer pilots are very reasonably timid about what they'll do with the plane and all that. And he just said, look out of the clear parts of the plane and fly the damn thing. And it just reminds, you know, so like I've mentioned this before, even when I'm on cross country flights and I'm flying, say a couple of hours somewhere or whatever, I will make time even in the, just the, instead of just being on direct to enter autopilot and just going, I'll disconnect it. You can actually get a lot of interesting kind of flying in while you're quote unquote in cruise direct and to go take a look at something or go, you know, obviously flying VFR, but it's, there's so much flying that you can do that I think people just forget when you're in cruise on a long trip, you can do a lot of interesting things. So it's funny, my brother-in-law that I share the airplane with, he just retired from Delta after a 20 plus year career. He and I are completely the opposite. If I'm doing a cross country, I'm going to file IFR regardless of what the weather is. He will never file IFR if he can get away with it because of the exact reason that you're saying he's been flying IFR for the last 20 <laughs> something years. And if he doesn't have to do it again, because if I want to go over here and check this thing out, then by God, I want to go over there and check this thing out. Absolutely get it. Yeah. I want, hey, I want to yeah. give a, a I want to give a shout out in the comments. We've got Flying Midwest podcast in here, and their new co-host Badger Pilot is hanging out. So nice. it's nice to see them, and it's a it, it's such a little community, right? Listen to their podcast, and oh, what's the what's and you've the, got a I, podcast, and you've got a yeah. podcast, and you've got fly, a podcast. is it Fly the Transition? The yes, their, yes, their that's it. Because yeah. I'm listening to that both of Midwest and Fly yeah. the Transition, so. Yeah. And then to hear Flying Stampede on there who are collecting the passport stamps over there. And yep. I never had done the math that Stampede is about collecting stamps. I was like, oh, I am. That's pretty yeah, clever. I'm so slow. Yeah. So. Did you guys see my self-imposed embarrassing radio response in my video? I think, oh yeah, I posted the clip in the Discord. I didn't think it was that embarrassing. You you called, I, what I'm curious is what her reaction was, because basically- she put you on a squeeze play and you called her out on it, which you were like, thank you for trusting me to run this squeeze yeah. play. It's what the vibe I felt. Now, maybe I missed. No, that know. was totally it. I just can't believe I said squeeze play on the radio. <laughs> I think that was awesome. But, but she was really like chill, right? Like she was the one that was initiating. So yeah, like to people. Yeah, thinking, yeah. She obviously could hang. That was a good person to do it with. Some controllers you feel like I, maybe they're not actually human. And I, yeah, I, I liked her a lot, but it felt like after the 34th or the 35th lap in the pattern for that session, she's like, how long is this guy going to go? <laughs> yeah, I did. It was, you could hear the, the exhaust yeah. in her voice. Yeah, it was, it was 12. I did 12 landings. They're all in the video, various levels of quality, but, but the idea, the funny thing about it was I, my total flight time uh, in terms of tack time, I want to say it was like, uh, I don't know, point three or something. It, it was 
so fast because I was just, I was you're doing, you're doing short patterns, as you said. And yeah. yeah. And it's insane. And they even extended me two or three times. They extended me once on the upwind, a couple of few times on the downwind, but, but I'm just, as soon as they say extend downwind, I'm just like pulling flaps, put it in a slow flight, trying to stay close. But, but even with all of those things, I think, yeah, she realized, oh, this guy's just going to fly. <laughs> this guy's just going to fly short approaches no matter what he's doing. <laughs> you know, because it's not normal for people to be coming in. Like I said, there's those, the big hills that are on the sort of downwind, uh, end of the downwind before you get to yeah. the base turn. If you turn before that, you are really on short final for your, when you intersect base to, to final. So I think she just saw like, honestly, the difference between my regular pattern that I'm flying there now versus a short approach is whether I square off yeah. or not. And that's really all the same. So is that a Piper thing being able to just go at a 45 straight for the numbers like you were doing? Because it's hard for me to even imagine trying to do that because it's like, if I turn like that and you're still as high as you were, there's n- I'm going to gain speed. There's no way I'm going to land. Yeah. And, you know, it's called Hershey bar wing. Kind it, of figured, but yeah. You yeah. used a term of a leaden did? Oh, I said a leaden Hershey bar wing Piper. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a really interesting thing because when you first, the, the Archer that I was flying before, it was tapered wing and it definitely had a lot more float and glide to it. It's interesting when you're trying to learn how to fly that wing for what it is. And at first, because of all your previous experience, you see it as this kind of, I don't know, almost a detriment or something. But I have come to really find it to be so great doing when I was training impossible turns, knowing that I can get down and not be at a hundred knots when I do is pretty great. And then also, this is a weird point of view, but it's like, with it, when I'm when I was flying a 172 and I'm doing emergency drills at altitude, I'm thinking, oh, the world is my oyster. Let me look and see where all the different options are, where I'm going to go. Now it's just look right here and right here, and maybe right here and right here behind you, and that's pick something that is right there and don't play with anything else. And so I feel like in a weird way, in that kind of duress, that it, having a sort of constraint around the field of options in a way. It's good, but yeah, flying flying in the pattern there and, and instead of starting, usually I would pull one notch around a beam and kind of wait a little bit. And sometimes I was doing that, but a lot of times I was just like just hanging out at pattern altitude all the way until I get to the turn from downwind to base and then just sending it. And I don't, yeah, I didn't know you couldn't really, I didn't know the CTLS. It seems like the CTLS is, <laughs> the, the egg seems like a slinky plane. With the high wing and the gross weight of 400 pounds, it, it takes forever to get back to the ground. Tell us about, you did a, a tour, you called it the Olympic loot? I did. If you if you think about where Seattle is, which is not at the upper left corner of, of the state, it's inland quite a ways. What, so the west of that is the Olympic Peninsula, Olympic Park, and it's mountains, 9,000 feet. Rainforest, believe it or not, yeah. 300 days of moisture and it's mostly fog. So it's unusual that you can go over that way. And but there's a great loop to go around it. And I was trying to collect all my passport stamps. And so I, the weather wasn't perfect, but I knew it was going to be good enough through the whole way. And I had such a great time just flying seven new airports. And it's, I know airports I want to go back to and camp and explore and everything else. It was really cool. So one of the things that I left out a little bit, there was a spot in there where 
the guy was the flight following controller was telling me to switch to his other frequency and I give the frequency and he says no and he gives the frequency again and, and all that. He had me switch to this other frequency and I thought it was my radio. It was like it was like cutting out on his words all the time. And so you're only hearing about half of it. And so first I'm trying like turning the squelch on and everything else and trying to listen to this guy. And it's just it's really rough. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I go back to the other frequency that he's on and I can hear him just fine. It's for some reason, the one frequency was bad. And the problem was, this was a guy that was intimidating me a bit anyway. And so I didn't want to come back and be like, hey, mm. this is terrible. It's like, he didn't want to deal with me much. So I right. was off my own, but just one of those uh, kind of strange things. So it was a great trip. There's this airport up there called Kiliut, Q-U-I-L-L-A-Y-U-T-E, Uh nice Native American name, but it it's as far west and north as you can get. And so there's a weather balloons station there. And I showed that in the video and I walked around it and everything else, which is cool. And there's a NOAA facility there, even though nobody lives there basically, but it's this massive airport and all these slabs of concrete. This was World War II bombers and everything else. And it's been laid fallow. It's just being overgrown because there's nobody there. But I can imagine in World War II, you're shipping all these bombers over the Pacific. You're sending them from there up around Alaska and back down that way. That was probably a really busy place. And yet it's it's just ghosts. It's And it's just this really amazing place. So I'm really looking forward to going back there and exploring a little bit more. I think there may be a meetup possibility there if there's any camping. Oh, if it's that big, that sounds like it'd be a really cool place. Like you can camp wherever you want it. Yeah. That whole but the whole Olympic Peninsula, like I said, is it's my favorite place that I've ever been. And to go camping out there, you know, the hiking in on the around like Third Beach, I guess that's near Forks, maybe, yeah. and all that. Yeah, hiking in there, and then just going down the beach and everything, and just camping. And I remember one time I was camping there, and and I thought, okay, I'm going to camp on the beach. This is great. And then I set up a tent, and then I looked at the tide table as opposed to the reverse <laughs> order. <laughs> And it was just you look at the tide table and then you look at the ocean and then you look at the, right. And then you look at the cliff behind you and then you right. look at the, and you're just like, I'm on the edge of the toilet bowl of yeah. the entire ocean. And I'm thinking that I'm going to sleep in a plastic bag right and here. There's like a, a seven or 10 foot difference in, in the tides. It's not like there's a foot difference and you're like, whatever. It's, no, this is a significant amount. Right. Yeah. So cool though there with all the rocks. And so when it, when the tide goes out, you got the starfish and all the. Yeah, man, it's just that's a promised land kind of place. But yeah, also a lot of bears. That was fun. Uh, a lot of, a lot of critters to worry about up there. But that video you put out, it's just, it's almost rude, Ted. Because <laughs> I agree. It's it, you're just, you I know. know. I I didn't get my invitation. I'm not sure about you, Brian, yeah, but I, I was just waiting for it and waiting for it. And so if we if we were going to fly over to you, Ted, where would, which, what would, should we go over the north or around the south or what should we do for us people with no oxygen? <laughs> I think going the south through New Mexico is probably the, the safest. Otherwise, there's a spot through Montana you can go. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'll probably do that next year. I'm unsure what direction I'll go. There's a, there's a spot right there through Wyoming that I'm thinking about, but you know, um, I forget just how unusual it is and it's like you, you see a video like that and then and sitting there cutting it together you're like oh man i just forgot that this isn't normal <laughs> these runways in the middle of nowhere and 
Sekiu that Nate and Alyssa were talking about, the really narrow one with a really long threshold and things like that, where it's like, these are, I, I just forget how magical it is. And yeah. so I don't know, I, I need to, I, I need to not complain and <laughs> remember how lovely it is. So I have a trip to Portland and I may try to get up there a little bit, a couple of days early and pull a Ted and go get checked out in a rental plane and let him show me around maybe. Oh yeah. Be a good idea. Totally. Yeah. I'm working on a mega trip for next summer and I think it's around a, I want to say it's like maybe a, I don't know, like a 3000 mile trip. <laughs> we got to make sure that we don't plan our mega trips. <laughs> crossing <laughs> yeah i don't want to <laughs> it might not be the worst it could be the worst but it may not be the worst thing where maybe we did a mega trip together in each of our own airplanes flight yeah. of three yeah just that's, take the midlife pilot podcast on the road that sounds tiring yeah so yeah. who's how what's your cruise speed ted yeah about 105 knots oh that's pretty good yeah we'll send them out two hours ahead of us yeah exactly <laughs> Then you can just do the whole thing across the United States with 20 degrees of flaps in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to talk about doing a tower tour and then uh, I'm a controller follow-up that you're going to talk about, Ben. Yep. Um, I finally went, I'm back at my Delta Tower. I was gone all summer at a little airport. And so now that I was back at that airport, I wanted to get a go tour the tower. And it was great. They were really quiet. It was one of those kind of IFR days. And so... They weren't even using headsets. They were just grabbing the the phone handset when they to talk to someone, which is like once an hour. And so I just got to hang out and talk to them and ask, okay, what do you have for radar? What do you have for ADSB? What do you have for what do you like about flight following and all that? And they're not a contract tower; they're a real tower. They have radar. I think that's the FDIO. And they're like, okay, around us we've got like thirteen hundred feet and up. In these other areas, it's two thousand feet and up. We've got below that with ADSB, and so it's like telling me it was great to get that lay of the land geographically what they're aware of and so i know when i'm when i'm making my calls and everything else and i think it's one of those where it's like you you get a vibe once and then you just never follow up on it and so it's got to ask for flight following once and they said no and it's okay they don't like to do it here then i go talk to them like oh please yeah we want to give those out all the time we can we can do it for, for free basically for your, for your local codes we've got those we don't have to contact anyone if, we're, if you're just local and so I was like, that was great. I'll start getting codes from them more often. So it was really cool to just sit up there and hang out with them. And and so they have, there's two big flight schools there. One is the national chain has about 10 or 12 air, airplanes there. With the a really long school. call sign name. Yeah, yeah. Job track. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And the other one is a regional mill that does a lot of international students. And they've got about 25 or 30 planes. And what they do at this tower is they've got little like plexiglass, they call them chips, just just like a strip, yeah. they're plexiglass. And so they have the tail numbers written on them and they have a panel of those and they keep them in alphabetical order. And then when one of those planes goes out, they physically put it in their queue and everything else. So it's not just the printed strips, they also have the right. chips. And it, it totally makes sense when you've got these really busy schools. It was like, it's cool to see the tangible physical pieces that they use for that. I wish they did it like a, I don't know, like when you're a kid and you go to the fire station, they let you just BS on the intercom or whatever. <laughs> I wish that the tower tour would be like, oh, you want to try it? Come on in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, just so, say possible pilot deviation yeah. <laughs> to everybody who calls in. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you um, get a deviation, you get a number. I um, got to ask him like how far out they, they wanted to hear when you check in. They don't want to hear from me 15 miles out because I'm still 30 minutes away at that point. Right. But we just call in over Forest Grove when you're coming in from that direction or whatever. And getting those local things were great. They also recognized my, just, they recognized my tail. They're like, oh, you're Whiskey Bravo. And the one guy is, hey, sorry about calling you a Cessna the other day, which was like <laughs> two days before. It's like, what a great memory that, like, just from that, they know the people. So that's right. Awesome. I totally agree. I go to my tower probably once a month. It just happens that the manager and I grew up in the same small town. But I try to go check out as many towers, especially if I go to the same airports over and over again. Because you get that inside intel. And if you're making yeah. their job easier, then everybody's going to win in that scenario. Yeah. Speaking of controllers, I wanted yeah. to hit some of the feedback. We have a pretty amazing Discord server started by Mr. Brian Siskin. And it's grown exponentially. And it's just so much great content in there. And so if you'd like to take part, send us an email at Midlife Pilot Podcast at gmail.com and say, I want to join the Discord and we'll send you an invite. But there was a discussion in there about getting flight following on the ground from your Class D airport. And actually, there was one airport that was in a Tursa as well, but that they couldn't get a flight following on the ground. And I have personally experienced this throughout my aviation career. Some of them you can. And at Deltas and some of them you can't. At my own Delta, I cannot. And we'll explain why in a minute. So we, I, I decided to ask our previous guest from the BNA Tracon, Scott Weckler, what's the deal? When can you get uh, a code on the ground to get flight following before you ever take off and when you can't? So I'm going to try to summarize his response because it is long and too long for me to read. We can read it. I think it's all, it's okay. all good. Yeah. Okay. I'll read it. I mean, if you want, I can read it. I want you to go ahead. Yeah. I, I I just think it was really, and if you haven't heard the episode with the property pilots, as they are known here, Scott and Shelly Weckler, we had them on last week. Please go listen to that. But I'll just read it real quick. He says, hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. Hi. <laughs> All right. He says, most class Delta airports have a FDIO, flight data input output, meaning that they have the ability to receive and manipulate national airspace system flight data. This means they receive flight plans, can put in VFR flight following requests, get a beacon code, and make small changes to flight plan information. Here in Nashville, uh, MQY, which is Smyrna, Mike, Quebec, Yankee is one of the two class Delta airports and is a contract tower. They have a FDIO and can put in VFR flight following requests. We strongly encourage this. If you can get a code info in the, into the computer, thus allowing it to populate immediately on the radar, why not do it on the ground? It saves us tons of extra work and saves pilots from getting the requested services immediately. However, John Toon, JWN, Juliet Whiskey November, is the other class Delta, and it's, we're on the, it's on the west side by my house over here, and is a contract tower. They do not have a FDIO and therefore do not even have the option. I believe 
all FAA non-contract class deltas have FDIOs. Determining which contract class delta airports do or do not have FDIO would require you to ask each individual one. Assuming they do have FDIO, they would most likely be able to give you flight following on the ground, and this is preferred. The only exception to this would be if the Class Delta lacks a letter of agreement between themselves and the controlling airspace center slash approach to give them the ability to do so. One reason may be due to the lack of assignable beacon codes allocated to a certain area, which by the way, side note, I didn't realize that was a thing. My suggestion is to always ask for it on the ground if you intend to get it in the air. If you find out your airport does not allow for it, then that's not going to change, so you can stop asking. <laughs> I hope that helps. Let's so, thank you, so, Scott. And and that's the that second part is why we can't. So my home airport, Romeo Yankee Yankee, does have FDIO, does have radar, but LOA. Sorry, LOA. Yeah, thanks. Not LOA. Yeah. Yeah. Mark will keep you straight. <laughs> There's four class deltas under the Atlanta Bravo. And if each of those four, and three of them are super busy, PDK is one of the busiest airports on the East Coast, Delta's on the East Coast, uh, next to like Teterboro. All of these air, these airports start flinging off air flight following airplanes with codes. The Atlanta Tracon would be overwhelmed in a matter of minutes because they also yep. have to control all the other traffic. Yeah. So there is no LOA with our class Delta and Atlanta Tracon. And I get it. I, and if you get up in the air, you can hear pretty quickly if those guys, they'll tell you via far flight following request, they'll say, I need 15 minutes. If you'll just please call back in 15 minutes, which is great. That's fine. Yeah. I had, when I was flying into LA, I was well inside the whole LA chaos area. And they said, Basically, all VFR traffic flight following is canceled, and they just dumped everyone at the same time. It was <laughs> yeah, it was chaotic, but yeah, it's that same sort of thing. I, they just did like a control A delete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Too yeah funny. It's, it's so good to get it on the ground though, and I just need to be, I need to get in the habit of that. If I, I, I because I grew up here at John Toon, flying, learning all the things. So I came up in a Delta that did not offer flight following, as you heard in the email, reasons why. And it actually has screwed me up in the opposite way because it took me a minute. Once I got out of the roost, it was like, oh, wait, this is a thing yeah. that you can actually do. And so now I'm so excited every time I can, I'm anywhere else because most other Deltas, you can get it. And it's, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of feedback. Do you mind if I share some feedback we got from a listener? Yeah. Named Only Keith. if it's good. Only if it's good. I think you're going to like this one. Okay. Hello, Midlife Pilots. This is from Keith C. Since we're the format we're going with. I'm so excited for the direction of the podcast. I have been a day one listener. Chris and Brian started the show just as I was starting my pilot training at age 41. This show has continued to be an inspiration, and I wish Chris all the best as he steps back. I completely being, I completely understand being stretched thin and managing time, family, work, and flying. Hmm. Ben and Ted are doing an amazing job carrying the torch, and Brian, you are the glue that keeps our community together. Brian loved watching your recent trip to Marfa and the discussion on the show about high-density altitude operations. 
bit about me. I live in Little Rock. Do you think it's okay to share all this? What's his address? He didn't have an address in here, so I guess we're good. Yeah. So he lives in Little Rock, owns a 2009 Technum 2000, a P-2008 LSA aircraft, which is a pretty cool looking airplane. We've got one of those at our airport. And if I want the LSA right route, that would be a top contender for me. However, he continues, in May 2022, I obtained my sport license, sport pilot license. At the time, I just wanted a quick and less expensive entry into aviation, and the LSA is a fabulous route to this, which I totally get. Fast forward, I am now at 262 hours, have obtained my PPL, working on my instrument rating, and have decided to go full throttle in my hours and ratings to do the ultimate midlife pilot and career change to the airlines by early 2025. Wow. Yeah, that's big. If all goes as planned, I'll be able to enjoy a 20-year second career, possibly longer if the retirement age changes from 65. To do this, I'm averaging 25 hours per week right now flying and loving it. That's a lot of time in the air. That is. Time building, yeah. I'm jealous and I'm not, (laughs) if that (laughs) makes any sense. He goes on to say, note on the state passport programs as a way to keeping things interesting as I time build, I'm actively doing the Arkansas Aviation Ambassador Program. It's a cash to flyer. If you do 70 airports in 24 months and show participation in the FAA Wings Program, you'll get a check for $300. That will buy you a tank of gas maybe and uh, a hamburger. If you're interested, I'll periodically keep you all posted on my journey and hopefully can be an additional inspiration to us old folks, in quotes, living our dream. P.S. I would love to invite to the Discord, which we sent to him. I want to keep up with this guy because I'm fascinated by people that are switching. I know that I'm going to be switching, but I'm going to be retiring and it's not the same. It's He's cutting it off, man. He's switching and he's making the big jump and, and I admire the heck out of that. I really like also the various paths that people take. I think any, or not any, I would say most people would say if you were starting to even just be interested in learning how to fly, very few people would say, well, just start off with a light sport and do that for a couple hundred hours. And then once you're feeling good about everything, then change it over and then just go blitzkrieg on all of all the other things and medical and whatever. But in a weird way, I feel like that kind of makes, I would imagine for certain people, a lot of sense. It's I really, what really stood out to me was just the idea that it's a low, a sort of low friction way of just getting in there and getting going. And what quicker way to find out if this is even what you want to be doing anyway, without hanging your hat on all the other things. So yeah. I don't know. It, it means one more check rider. That's the that's one disadvantage for people like us that that aren't going to be like we're not trying to save every hour. We're not trying to get through training and not have any excess hours. It doesn't really matter as much. You know, if you're 19 and you go sport and you go private and you do all that and you're going to the airlines, and you're trying not to waste any single hour. You there's some excess hours that you spent doing that. But so what? Right. In this case, you're flying right. either way, and yeah. And then what a great plane to to do time building in. Like, Absolutely. So efficient. To, to give us some semblance of what that one is, Ted, can you give us an idea of what the hourly operating cost of your airplane is? Oh, yeah. It's silly, right? You can just assume four gallons an hour 
if it's the carburetor model, you can assume five gallons an hour. I was uh, give us day. like the full though with the engine. Do you have? Do you keep track with your maintenance? Um, do you keep yeah. a spare engine in the back? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, yeah. It's, so uh, we're yeah. we're seventy five dollars an hour, just pure gas yeah. burning. Yeah, yeah. And this is what twenty dollars an hour. Twenty dollars so, more. Yeah, that's, that's a that's great full way to, throttle, by the way. That's yes. So yeah. I appreciated that in your latest video, by the way, that I could hear more of the engine sounds. It's a cool sounding engine. It, it is. A lot of traditional people don't like it because it's high RPM, right? It's 5,000 RPM. And when you hear it taking off, it sounds like it's screaming compared to you know, yeah. like an O200 and a 150. You just go and it reminds so, me of my it reminds yeah. me of my MR2 where it, it's it's made for high RPMs. It's not going to get any tough guy points yeah. when you're screaming down the road at five or six thousand RPM, right? But there's something very satisfying about it, even though I'm going yeah. six thousand RPM in third gear and I'm going forty one <laughs> miles an hour. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it's it's designed to to run at almost full throttle, right? So you're right. In fact, if you run leaded gas in it, you're supposed to stay over 5,000 RPM in it, and which I usually am doing anyway. But so it's not like you are flying it and you want to pull it back to about half throttle the whole time. No, it's meant to be almost pinned. And yeah. Do you actually, so when you're in cruise though, you have to, you pull it back some, right? Like you're not just. So from 97 to a, so again, this is fuel injected. So it's a little bit more precise and everything else, but from 97 to 100%, it's running basically reach a peak it just dumps fuel into the engine once you pull it back to 97 or 96 percent it goes back into an eco mode effectively a lena peak it's not quite that but you can assume it as that and so you go from uh, about six gallons per hour to four just by going from 97 to 96 percent throttle and so i'll usually run it like 95 percent throttle the whole time it, just trying to see just below that that um that eco mode stem mm-hmm. that it has so, so interesting. And not to over compare the MR2, but my MR2 <laughs> has this, they, they, Toyota did this thing briefly where it was a, it's a variable intake system that is when you get to about 4,200 RPM, it'll just basically open, just change the airflow a little bit. Yeah. And it almost sounds like in a weird way it does something like that. It's like a step. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a, like a, it's, it's not a turbo, but it's yeah. something. But anyway, well, that's so cool. And then Ben, you you burn what like twenty six an hour? <laughs> uh, that's before turning it on. That's just sitting on the ramp. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's how much drips out of the fuel vent when we top it off. <laughs> I wanted to hustle back. I had an angel flight yesterday, and it was getting kind of late, and weather was coming in, so I was burning sixteen and a half an hour, true and out at about one hundred and forty eight knots. Mm-hmm. Oh well, that's when you pull it back. What are you doing? One thirty five, and fifteen yeah. gallons an hour. She likes to drink it. That's okay. Listen, I'm not yeah. complaining. She doesn't do anything excellent, but she does just about everything great. Exactly. Yeah. And now I got to see, I want to do a sort of comparison contrast between when your brother-in-law is flying the plane and when you are to see. <laughs> so here's what you need to, here's what you need to watch. And okay. I'll give you the flight when he flies or when I fly. It's the climb out. He likes to hang that prop. He likes to hang the airplane on the prop because he's used to flying a 757 and he's climbing 3,000, 5,000 feet per minute. 
and he wants to see how many feet per minute he can get in our airplane. He likes to point that nose up to the sky. And <laughs> the 7.5 was the overpowered Boeing, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. And it's kind of the equivalent. Yeah. So he thinks he's got an overpowered Cessna and he wants to do the same yeah. thing. Aren't those also the ones that can go really slow on final? They can. They, yeah. And they don't need a lot of runway either. Yeah. So what do we want to get from people here? We need we need reviews. We so well, while we do have a lot of ratings, I think people have slacked off on the reviews on Apple Podcasts for the last little bit. It would be awesome to get some five-star reviews there. We've, we're running a, a great streak. We're all five stars and we've got a decent, I think we're up to like 60 or something, but I want to see a little bit of things going on there. So if people can do that, then that's awesome. Yes, 25 cents a month. The support link is in the show description, or you can just go to Spotify and you'll see the button to do that there. And then I really do want to talk about this merch. Yeah. Store.midlifepilotpodcast.com. Ted has commandeered this amazing pint glass. What do you, in, in the Northwest, do you call that something different? It's a pint glass, and they always distinguish between a, a real pint, a legal pint, or not. Very specific about the pours. It's a great-looking glass. I like having it. It's just a water glass for me, but I, I like having it here. And uh, yeah, I got some of the stickers off the store, and I got this shirt. I've seen a lot of shirts and hats. Ben's wearing a hat. There's a sticker. Yeah. So it is Christmas and Hanukkah season. Tell your loved ones about store dot midlife pilot podcast dot com uh and it's a lot of great gift ideas in there our fledgling spot for bag of words it seems like people just really don't want to send us stuff that's embarrassing right uh, so maybe that's just not an angle to take but we'll continue to post those of ourselves when we have those so we will still keep that that segment i want to living. throw something out there yeah i think that if we get a listener send in a bag of words we get them something from the merch store Oh, we send them a shirt. We bribery. Them, uh, yeah, bribe them. Okay. Send them a sticker. All right. So if somebody wants to submit a bag of words first, you have to explain what is a bag of words and where do they send it and how? Ted? Why don't you explain it and then I'm going to read one that I've been holding on to. Oh, you, okay. Yeah. Uh, bag of words is when you're on frequency with air traffic control and you have what's in your brain, what you want to say, but what comes out is just a bag of words, also known as a word salad. We're asking you to show a little humility. Tell You're just like the rest of us. You, you make mistakes on the radio. Quite frankly, I think controllers love it because they're entertained by it. <laughs> I'm at 960 hours. And I do a bag of words about every other flight. So it doesn't matter what your experience level it is. It happens to all of us. <laughs> I, I was just coming off. It's in that latest video. But I was coming off Delta 2 and I gave my call sign as 812. And I'm 814. It's like I had the two in my head and I just, it's one of those where you go back and review it. Did I really do that? So I've had this one sitting from Colin for about six weeks. Colin's over on the West Coast, best coast here. And he said, during my recent solo, my instructor insisted that I use student solo or solo as part of my call sign. I was doing okay adding in the new words until my last lap based to final. Watsonville traffic, Diamond Star 5, Papa Charlie, turning solo, runway 20. Watsonville. <laughs> <laughs> solo 20 works. Yeah. <laughs> the only final. 
that's one of those things that, that students should take advantage of a lot more is I wish I could say that every call I make now, just that they think that I'm still a student. I, I still, I, there's times when I'm thinking, all right, I'm just going to call myself a student solo, even though that I'm not, just because I think you can handle a little bit nicer. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to feel like they're really happy that I had a mediocre landing. Right. Good job. He's a good job guy out there trying to land. Good job. But yeah, so bag of words, email them to midlifepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Bonus points for audio of that for those of you that record things. But you can just type it out and maybe it's not as embarrassing. We'll hide your call sign. We'll do whatever you say. If you don't like us identifying you, then just call yourself November 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And we'll bri- we're not above bribing. Clearly. We'll, we'll make something happen. Hey, the other thing that people should know is if you ask us to join the Discord by emailing midlifepilotpodcast at gmail.com. And one of the cool things about the Discord is, at least after the podcast, a lot of times, we will go and we'll hop into one of the uh, voice video channels in the Discord and we'll do a little bit of a, an afterhang sometimes. That's where we're going to be in just a minute. Yeah. Guys, thanks for joining me tonight for episode 49. We appreciate everybody in the chat joining in. And we will see you next week on the Midlife Pilot Podcast. Thanks, y'all.